So hey guys, I made a discovery as a dad a bunch of years ago I want to share with you this morning. Many of you know I wasn't always a pastor, and after college for about the next 20 years or so, I made a career in the finance industry. And for some of that time, I was on the road a little bit, traveling to various cities, looking at different investment opportunities or meeting with different investment companies. I didn't travel a lot, but just enough to make it, well, for me, kind of fun and different. The person that it wasn't so fun for uh, and was definitely different was, and not in a good kind of way, my poor wife, who I was leaving home with four small kids. And for those four kids, well, they missed their dad a lot when he was gone. And so I started a little tradition with them when they were young. Whatever city I would go off to, when I came home, I'd bring them a gift, a little present from specifically that place. That gift, well, over time, it became a little bit of a collection because what I would always bring back was one of those little snow globes, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, from whatever city it was that I'd been in, it would have the skyline, he'd shake it and the snow would come down. Over the years, two things happened. The first is, it got more and more difficult to find snow globes in the airport duty-free shop. They disappeared as quickly as the days of getting a meal on a plane did. And the second was that the kids got less and less enthused about getting a new snow globe where they once greeted me at the door looking to see what I had bought for them, now it was more like, oh, thanks, Dad. This culminated a little bit with my last child, my baby, Caroline. You see, by the time Caroline came around, snow globes were, I mean, they were as non-existent as snow in July. And frankly, if she wanted one, all she had to do was dig to the bottom of the toy box and pick out one that hadn't been touched in years. And so Caroline and I, we started our own tradition. Of my four kids, Carrie was clearly the most upset whenever I would go to leave on a business trip. It was probably because she was the youngest, the baby, the family. So in some sense, when I left the other three, they, they were kind of together. But when I left Carrie, it often felt like she was because she was so young, I was leaving her alone. And, and she got really upset. So uh, she and I started to do something that was a little different. I would tell her that I was going to be really lonely while I was gone, and so I remember the first time she did it, it was so cute. She took one of her little stuffed animals, and she stuffed it into my suitcase. And then what I would do is I would take one of her stuffed animals, and I'd spray some cologne on myself, and I'd rub her stuffed animal deep into my neck, and I would do it right in front of her so she could see it. And then as I handed it back to her, I would say, Carrie, I put my stink on it for you. And she'd take a big smell of it, and Joan would tell me she'd carry it around with her the whole time I was gone. She'd even sleep with it at night because it comforted her. It made her feel like her father was near and not far, that dad was close. Whenever I would leave, she'd, she'd hand me her little stuffed animal and tell me to put my stink on it. See, it, it turned out for Caroline, there was something that she wanted more than just a gift from her dad. What she really longed for was the comfort of her dad's presence. Guys, welcome to week two of Known, our deep dive into Psalm 139, where David, Israel's great king, describes for all of time his God and our God. A God who chooses to share with us, his beloved creation, a singular primary desire, and that is to be fully known and to be truly loved. Last week, in week one, we looked at the first of four incommunicable attributes of God, 
that David reveals to us in this writing. Now, an incommunicable attribute of God is an attribute that only he has, an attribute that he doesn't share with us. God, for example, he's wise and loving, and, and we can be those things too. Those are communicable attributes of God. But there are certain things that only God is. Now, the first of those that we talked about last week is omniscient. Put simply, God is all-knowing. He knows everything, past, present, future. There is nothing that God can even learn. He knows everything there is to know, fully, wholly, completely, and that includes us. And yet, as we discovered last week, with full knowledge of us, our past and our present and what we're going to be doing in the future, this God, David reveals, still longs to be with us. He still pursues us, comes after us, loves us. I love the way Tim Keller put it. To be loved but not known is comforting, but it's kind of superficial. And to be known and not loved, well, that's actually our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved, well, it's a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. So what we discovered last week is that this truth, it then leaves us with a choice. We can kind of rest and revel in that, like a kid coming home from college on break, just kind of flopping on the couch and saying, oh, I'm home, because here I'm known and I'm loved. Or, or I guess the second choice is we can do what's come naturally to man since that first pre-fall morning dawn, and that is to run and to hide. And so, with that in mind, let's jump back in. Here's how David put it. He said, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I, if I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and, and the light become night around me, even, even the darkness, it won't be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Guys, here's what David figured out. Here's what God wants you to know about him. Just like for David, his omniscience, his all-knowing nature, it might want to make you run and hide. But there is nowhere to hide. You know why? Because God is everywhere. This incommunicable attribute of God theologians refer to as omnipresence. God is omnipresent. He is absolutely everywhere in the created universe. His presence is unlimited. He is everywhere present at the same time, present in every part of every space, is God's whole being. A.W. Tozer put it this way, in his infinitude, he surrounds the finite creation and contains it. There is no place beyond him for anything to be. God is our environment as the sea is to the fish and the air to the bird. God is over all things, under all things, outside all, within but not enclosed, without but not excluded, above but not raised up, below but not depressed, holy above, presiding, holy beneath, sustaining, holy within, filling. God is, was, and will always be everywhere. And so not only does he know all things, 
He was present and at and in all things, which, if we're honest, is really hard to wrap our minds around, right? I mean, omniscient, well, maybe, you know, maybe we can make some sense of that. If he's God, I guess, I guess we could accede that he's all-knowing. But all-present? I mean, how would that even be possible? How, how could that work? It, it, it almost sounds contradictory, right? Because we think in terms of, of time and of space. But as we talked a little bit about last week, God, guys, is not bound by time and space. He's the creator of time and space. And so before we go on, what I need to, to do is to help you open your minds to this, because I spent most of my week this week trying to open my mind to it, to wrap my mind around it. While most everybody was trying to figure out the election results, I've been trying to figure out quantum physics. Uh, uh, just a quick word on the election results. God already knows, and God is already involved. Rest. Now. In terms of understanding God's omniscience, uh, excuse me, uh, omnipresence, relative to time and space, I love how Tony Campolo described it. He said, let me take you on a brief excursion into Einstein's theory of relativity. I thought that would get you interested. Einstein said the time is relative to motion. The faster you travel, the more time is compressed. So if I put you in a rocket and sent you in outer space, traveling at 160,000 miles a second, and said, come back in 10 years. Well, when you return, you would be 10 years older, but all the rest of us would be 20 years older. You say, how's that? Because as you increase speed, time becomes compressed, more and more compressed. So at 160,000 miles a second, our 20 years would be compressed into 10 years of your time. Keep going. If I put you in a rocket and sent you into space and you were traveling at 170,000 miles a second, our 20 years would be con compressed into one day of your time. Now, here's the clincher. If I got you traveling at the speed of light, 186,000 miles a second, all of time would be compressed into one moment. Now, we can't do that because as you approach the speed of light, your physical body would expand outward in weight and size towards infinity. He goes, I tell you that because don't let anybody ever say you're fat, just tell them you're traveling too fast. But if I could get you traveling at the speed of light, 186,000 miles a second, all of time would be compressed into one eternal now. All of time would be compressed into one moment. There would be no passage of time at all. I tell you that because that's God's time. With God, there is no past. There is no future. The very name of God suggests his eternal nowness. The name of God is, is what? I am what I am. God never was. God never will be. God is an eternal now. For him, all of time, all of history is compressed into one moment. That's why Jesus said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It all is one moment with me. He said, before Abraham was, I am. He wasn't using poor grammar. He was saying something profound. He said, before Abraham was thousands of years ago, that's simultaneous with me right now. It's present tense with me. Before Abraham was, I am. The nowness of God. And again, you might say, well, why is that important? Well, how about this? Because when Jesus hung on the cross 2,000 years ago, he was, 
And he is simultaneous with you sitting right here in, in your homes. At the speed of light in God time, those two moments are compressed into the same moment. So as Jesus hangs on Calvary's cross, he has you on his mind. He's aware of you sitting here and now. Now that is kind of out there. That's very big picture. But I have to tell you, if that blows your mind, it gets even crazier when you get smaller into the smaller picture. One writer in describing submolecular, the submolecular world, described its pursuit this way. He wrote, for thousands of years, people have wondered what the universe is made of, assuming that there's got to be some kind of building block, a particle, a basic element, something really small and super stable that would make up everything we know to be everything. I mean, the possibilities are fascinating because if you could discover this primal building material, you could answer countless questions about how we got here, what we're made of, where we're all headed. You could ideally make sense of everything. In fact, Greek philosophers speculated about this elemental building block using a particular word for it, tomos, which referred to cutting or dividing something down. And out of this, they developed the concept of something that was called a Tomos, something indivisible, uncuttable, something that everything else was made of, something really small of which nothing would be smaller, something atomos, from which we get the word atom. Imagine what we'd learn if we could actually discover one of these atoms. And that was the quest that compelled scientists and philosophers and thinkers for thousands of years until the late 1800s, when atoms were eventually discovered. Atoms, and you know this, are small. About a million atoms lined up side by side are as thick as a human hair. An atom is in size to a golf ball as a golf ball is in size to Earth. That small. But atoms, it was discovered, are made up of even smaller parts called protons and neutrons and electrons. The protons and neutrons are in the center of the atom called the nucleus, which is one millionth of a billionth of the volume of the atom. If an atom were blown up to the size of a stadium, the nucleus would be the size of a grain of rice, but would weigh more than the whole stadium. The discoveries continued as technology was developed to split those particles apart, which led to the discovery that those particles are actually made up of even smaller particles. And then technology was developed to split those particles, and it was discovered those particles were actually even made up of smaller particles. Guys, by now, there are somewhere around 150 subatomic particles that have been identified. The staggeringly tiny size of atoms and subatomic particles is hard to get your mind around, but stick with me here. It's what these particles do that force us to confront even our most basic assumptions about life and the universe. I'm sure you've seen a picture of an atom. There's a lot of popular images out there that lead us to think it's like the solar system with protons and neutrons in the center, like the sun and the electrons orbiting a path around the center, uh, like our planet orbits the sun. But those early pioneering scientists, they learned that this is not how things actually are. What they learned is that electrons don't orbit the nucleus in a continuous and consistent manner. Listen to this. What they do is disappear in one place 
and then appear in another place without traveling the distance in between. Particles vanish, and then they show up somewhere else, leaping from one location to another with no way to predict when or where they'll, be there, they'll come or go. Niels Bohr, a friend of Einstein, was one of the first to come to terms with this strange new world that was being uncovered. He called these movements quantum leaps. Pioneering quantum physicists realized that particles are constantly moving, constantly in motion, exploring all of the paths from point A to point B all at the same time. They are simultaneously everywhere and nowhere. I want to repeat that again. They've discovered about these particles. They're simultaneously everywhere and nowhere. A given electron not only, not only travels all of the possible routes from A to B, but it reveals which path it took, this will blow your mind, only when it's observed. Electrons exist in what are called ghost states. They're constantly exploring all the possible routes they could take until they're observed, at which point all of those possibilities collapse into the one they actually take. This is why Niels Bohr said, if you study quantum physics and you aren't outraged, then you aren't studying quantum physics. I could go on about this, but I'm just gonna leave you with two cool things that I read about this week. Here's the first. This, way you wrap your arm, mind around this, a subatomic particle that's been bonded with another particle. When those two particles are separated, they actually somehow communicate with each other and demonstrate the awareness of where the other particle is without any actual communication with each other. Check out something called Bell's Theorem which states essentially that if you took an atom, cut it in half, and put half in New Jersey and half in San Francisco, and you change the rotational spin uh, on the one in New Jersey, the half in San Francisco will reverse its spin at the exact same moment. One last one, right? Uh, right now, almost all of you are viewing this talk sitting on a chair or a sofa at home, and, and that chair, that sofa, just like everything else, is made up of you guessed it, atoms. Here's the interesting thing about atoms. Atoms are 99% empty space. If all the empty space was taken out of all the atoms in the universe, the universe would fit in a sugar cube. An atom, in the end, is a thing, but a thing that's made up of mostly empty space, which is commonly believed to not be a thing. And so I have to ask you this morning, what are you sitting on? A chair, a tangible material physical object, is made up of particles of motion, bouncing off each other, crashing into each other, coming in and out of existence billions of times in billions of a second, existing in ghost states, and then choosing particular paths for no particular predictable reason. But yet your chair appears to be solid. But that solidity is a bit of an illusion. It, it has weight and mass and shape and texture, and, but your chair is actually just a relationship of Energy, atoms bonded to each other in a particular way that allows you to sit on them. Something, and, and scientists don't know what, something is literally holding that chair that holds you. Which brings new meaning to what Paul said to these same Greeks that were pursuing this knowledge in Athens. He said, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by human hands. 
Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Listen to this. Though he's not far away from any of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Or put more simply, as he did to the Colossians, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In an article about physicists searching for the, the Higgs boson, I'm probably mispronouncing that, but that's become known as the smallest particle, what they call this God particle. Jeffrey Kluger writes in Time magazine that they're, quote, grappling with something bigger than mere physics, something that defies the mathematical and brushes up, at least fleetingly, against the spiritual. All of which brings real context to, to what was one of Israel's patriarchs, Jacob's great discovery. Some of you know Jacob's story. One night he was running away from his brother Esau. Esau was trying to kill him because Jacob had cheated him out of his birthright and, and deceived their father at the encouragement of their mother. Jacob stops for the night as he's fleeing at what the writer of Genesis calls, quote, a certain place. That's a Hebrew way of saying no place in particular. Mendel, Chester. Could have been anywhere. Some spot by the side of the road with nothing special about it. Jacob had done nothing to merit what was about to happen to him now. I want you to hear that. Truth is, up until this point, here's what we know. He's a mama's boy, he's a liar, and he's a cheat. But that night, Jacob had a dream. And in it, he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. God said to him, I'm the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I wasn't even aware of it. This is none other than the house of God, he pronounced. This, this nowheresville is the gate of heaven. Did you hear what Jacob discovered? The Lord was in this place, and I didn't even know it. I was aware of it. I missed it. John Ortberg, in his great book, God is Closer Than You Think, put it this way. There is more than one form of sleep. Sometimes we're awakened by blessing. The birth of a baby, an unexplained healing, a marriage that was headed for divorce getting turned around. Sometimes we're awakened, our eyes are opened by suffering. God would later reveal himself again to Jacob by wrestling with him and dislocating his hip. You see, the soul is pierced by beauty and by suffering. But each moment that we live outside the awareness of God's presence is a kind of, of sleepwalking, which is why Paul wrote, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Somebody's eyes get open to the fact that God is right here in this ordinary place with this ordinary person. The striking phrase of Jacob is, and I wasn't aware of it. Somehow he was looking in the wrong direction. Guys, apparently it is possible for God to be present without the person recognizing that he's there. 
Can I get an amen from your couch? Apparently, it's possible that God is closer than you think. That was Jacob's discovery. In fact, Jacob calls this place where he had the dream Bethel. That is the house of God, the place where God's presence. It's transformed from just a certain place, nowhere special, my family room, to the place inhabited by God himself. And it was in really coming to grips with this truth that God is omnipresent that, that began to transform all of Jacob's life. Some of you know, eventually he decides to take the enormous risk of reconciling with his brother that, that he, he ripped off. Instead of continuing to steal, he, he wants to give back to him. Jacob eventually sees his brother, and after two decades of separation and hatred, as they, as they approach each other, if you're reading the story, we're just waiting to see. I mean, is, what's Esau going to do? Is he going to extract some revenge? But... The writer of Genesis says, Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. After a whole childhood of living as enemies, the two decades of living as strangers, now they're, brother, they're brothers again. And Jacob makes one of the great statements of Scripture. He looked at his brother and he said, to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Because, as Ortberg said, once you meet God at Bethel, once you see God in an ordinary moment, at an ordinary place, you start to realize you never know where he's going to show up again. You could start seeing him anywhere. Even in the face of someone that's been your mortal enemy for 20 years, God is closer than you think. God is omnipresent. He's not far off and angry. He's near and he is both literally and figuratively with us and for us. The lesson here for us is not that if we're good enough or give enough or pray enough, then maybe, maybe God might just show up a little bit in our lives and our circumstances. Guys, God is not somewhere else busy over there and, and our religious duty is somehow to get his mind off of what he's doing over there and get him to show up in our lives. And by the way, can I just tell you one of my least favorite religious sayings? I, mean, I hear people say it all the time, so I'm not, please forgive me if I'm offending you, I don't mean to. But, but I hear people say all the time, oh, and then God showed up. I have to tell you, God did not show up. We, like Jacob, simply had a moment where our eyes were open to him. The story, our story, is not our need to get God to show up. Our story and our need is to open our eyes to the God who is already there and already at work in our lives, holding all things, holding all things together. I like how Wartburg summarized it. How close has God come? Well, so close that every creature will be to you a mirror of life and a book of holy doctrine. He's come so close that each moment is a revelation from God. So close that he can flow in and through your life from one moment to the next like a river. So close that your heart will be beating with life because someone is, in a sense, walking around in there. God is closer than you think. And so set aside for now the question of to what extent any of us is capable of experiencing God's presence in our current spiritual condition, in our fallenness. Set aside your past failures or your future worries. 
The teachings of Scripture is this, that God is present right here, right now. The Spirit of God is available to you and me, flowing 24-7 all the time, welling up within us, quenching unsatisfied desires, overflowing to refresh those around us. He's at work all the time. He's in every place, and every once in a while, every once in a while, somebody, somewhere, wakes up. Church, my prayer for you this, this morning is, is that you and your pastor could, would, wake up. God is so near. He's here. He's with you. He's within you. May you sense and appreciate it. It's not your chair that's holding you this morning. It's God. It's not your job that's taking care of you. It's God. It, it's not merely your spouse that's your companion. It's God. It's, it's not your 401k that protects you, your accomplishments that define you. It's God. He's everywhere. And he can be found. He can be known. Not only that, he wants to be. You just have to open your eyes and look for them. This is one giant invitation to be amazed again at who he is and what he's up to. I mean, really, in light of his presence and power and knowledge, really, how worked up are you going to get about this election? Forget the election. God's here. He's still in charge. And he's still in love. And here's my last truth, and then I'm done for this morning. While it's true that God's present everywhere, he's not present everywhere in the same way. God is present with his people, his children, the redeemed, in a different way, in the fashion of a loving father. So God is present with his people in a more profound way, kind of like I would be in a crowded room with one of my children. He's not merely spatially present. With his children, he's relationally present. God, listen to me now, God is nowhere more present than literally in his people, dwelling, living in his children. And while God's omnipresence is part of his common grace, his indwelling of you and your soul, well, that comes by invitation only. My prayer for you this week, guys, is that as you awaken to his presence all around you, you would invite his presence within you. That you would give your life, your heart, your mind fully, completely, wholly to this God that wants to be known, who's made himself known through Christ. That you'd confess your sins, not because he doesn't know about them, he's omniscient, but because it would restore your relationship with him. And then, in light of his omniscience and his omnipresence, rest. When you do, when you do, here's maybe the best evidence that you're going to find of it in your life. Your desire will move from desiring things from God, trinkets, toys, snow globes. Instead, what you're going to desire much more, what, what you'll begin to long for, what will give you comfort and peace, is his presence. Church, this week, take a look out your window. This week, 
reflect on, feel the chair underneath your bottom and, and know this. God has left his stink all over this place for you. Take a deep breath. Breathe it in this week and allow it to transform you because your Father is near.